This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to literary treks our dedicated books and comics show i am your host matthew rushing in with me as he is always is dan gunther dan uh no secret 31 dan no section 31 missions this week Um, nope uh you're stuck with me they're they've okay well i mean at least that you can tell me about (laughs) well yeah yeah this is true you know yeah, I mean, who knows what you've been doing all week. I mean, <laughs> I'm not even going to ask. Yeah, Matthew, you're um, saying too much. Cut it out. Oh, my bad. Well, luckily, I mean, we've got some news to talk about, which was the fact that Ongoing 46 came out today, and it starts a new duology for the comics. Uh, and they have decided it is finally time to tackle the Tholian Web episode. And... I thought this was interesting, at least the start here, Dan. Um, you know, they had been stuck in the Delta Quadrant, and apparently warp drive is a lot faster, or the space between the quadrants is a lot smaller, because um, they are already close to the Alpha Quadrant again when they are thrown out of phase, and... S- a whole bunch of mayhem ensues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is a, it was kind of a surprise, like, oh, we're almost home. Oh, okay, we're just about near the Alpha Quadrant again. I, I think I remember some fan theory a little while ago, somebody saying that maybe the warp drive in the JJ-verse is actually like the quantum slipstream drive uh, of the regular universe, and that actually kind of makes sense in this case, because I can't figure out how... Uh, how fast they're going otherwise so yeah that's a that's a good thing i mean you know they never they never do deal with in in the jj verse of of you know how fast the starships are you know mm-hmm. they don't ever talk about you know really the the warp scale or you know if they do have some sort of slipstream drive but looking at it from like a visual effects perspective it does kind of look more like a slipstream type drive with the tunnel and the blue you know lights flying by instead mm-hmm. of really the stars that we're used to and everything so um i could see that and it, it makes sense to me so i'm going to put that in my head canon for the um comics so that when they get places so quickly it makes more sense but on the same token wouldn't that mean they would have explored a lot more of the galaxy in this five-year mission wouldn't be such a big deal like if you have slipstream technology yeah you'd kind of think so you know uh you know, they get sent to the Delta Quadrant and make it back in what I'm assuming is a few weeks, maybe a couple months or something like that. And uh, yeah, you'd think uh, a lot more of the galaxy would be mapped. They'd be exploring everywhere by now. Yeah, I mean, traveling to other galaxies at this point. I mean, why not? So, well, this is interesting because they get thrown out of warp and they realize that certain things they are phasing through which you know anytime you do this in star trek it always is interesting to me that why isn't anybody getting stuck in like the floor (laughs) why can they always walk around or sit down most of the time it's only like their hands that go through things you know or trip Um, and suddenly find themselves floating in the void yeah exactly (laughs) like all of a sudden you're in like well and that's another question why don't you end up with decompressed Right, yeah, what's holding the the air in if if the walls are interfacing? Right, which it 
so that you just have to let that go <laughs> um because otherwise you'll just it'll drive you crazy um and not only does this inner space affect the ship but it's also causing people to get really really angry and especially at captain kirk mm-hmm. yeah everybody just you know gets really ticked off at the captain uh i thought it was kind of interesting because you know, the original series episode where they encounter interface and people start getting affected, you know, in that one, it's mostly just, well, Chekhov, for example, screaming at the camera. <laughs> There's not a lot of thought put into their madness, but this one, they, they seem, you know, to still have their faculties intact, but are just, you know, angrier. Well, yeah, and they're all trying to take control of the ship, you know, Scotty and Sulu and all these people are trying to find a way to take control of the ship. And actually, it's McCoy who's the first one to kind of really lose it. And he yells at Spock and he slaps his hand away. Uh, and he kind of leaves the conference room because they were having a staff meeting. <laughs> and um, then, you know, as they're leaving the staff meeting, Kirk gets attacked by a crewman. And then Sulu takes over the bridge. Scotty takes over the drive section and... And they separate the saucer, which was kind of fun just because it's the first time we've seen that in the JJ. Bridge. Yeah, that was pretty cool, uh, you know, getting to see that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people may not realize, but the Enterprise from the movies was supposed to be able to separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were supposed to see that at the end of the motion picture. So, you know, it's not quite as new an idea as the next generation. So it was pretty cool to see it happen here. Yeah, it's it's been around for a long time, and you know I'm pretty sure there's got to be some books that take place in the movie era where they separate the saucer somewhere. It's got to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure the listeners will let me know how wrong I am if it's not, but <laughs> um, it just feels like something. I mean, the, the concept art was there for so long of you know the refit Enterprise uh, and and what it would look like as you know the saucer separates and everything mm-hmm. so and that's definitely where they just pulled the idea f- with the enterprise d when they did the next generation so um i yeah i'm really interested to go back and try and find that somewhere um you know when it rains it pours apparently in the delta quadrant or somewhere between the delta quadrant and the alpha quadrant and interface space and the tholians show up wrap both sections of the starship in their web and yeah it's that's where we leave it Mm -hmm. and so i have to say um it's definitely a fun setup like i feel like this is a great setup so i'm very very interested to see actually where they'll leave the story once it's finished Mm -hmm. yeah no it's definitely an interesting way to get this uh story off the ground and it's a really interesting place to leave it a good cliffhanger ending and of course uh we've got the two halves of the enterprise both ensnared so that's where we get the tholian webs instead of the tholian web so that's pretty cool i have to say i think the artwork is really well done in this issue there's some great scenes when they first get thrown out of warp the ship is upside down and and it's a great shot of the Enterprise and this very strange angle. We've never really seen it before. Mm-hmm. And so I just like some of the ways that they, the craziness of what's happening and the fact that you're in space and, you know, there really is no up, down, left, or right, yeah. any of that stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's all uh, in some ways kind of relative spatial terms in that way. I, I think it's really interesting. So I like. Um, the way that the art is portraying this story so far. And the webs look very different, too. It's it's much more fluid in the webs. That There's there's no geometry to them. Mm-hmm. It just seems like almost like lassos they're being or, spun. And, yeah. Like lassos or cocoons or something, you yeah. know, um, but not completely full cocoons. But, yeah, it, it's much more ropey as a feeling than you know the web that we were used to in say the enterprise episode um amir darkly or uh, even the tholian web kind of reminds me of the uh the jj verse transporter effect a little bit yes yes yeah exactly um so really kind of giving a different look so it's nice yeah i'm interested really of course to see what happens in the end and hopefully got my fingers crossed that um it'll be a good finale for this tholian webs (laughs) 
Well, Dan, I am excited that we are going to be continuing our Deep Space Nine relaunch, and, and we are really going to make a concerted effort to not really rush through these books, but basically, really, we want to be able to cap this series off. And I was counting today, not counting this book here, we have eight more left. Um, we're going to be starting the Worlds of Deep Space Nine series, which kicked off with Una McCormick's book, on Cardassia, and that book was called The Lotus Flower, and I, I just wanted to kind of give everybody, I think it will be helpful for everyone to kind of have the blurb in their mind before we really get going to kind of get back into the groove where we are with these characters, especially after Unity, and so The Last World Ravaged by the Dominion War is also the last on which Miles O'Brien ever imagined building a life. As he joins the reconstruction of Cardassia's infrastructure, his wife Keiko spearheads the planet's difficult agricultural renewal. But Cardassia's struggle to remake itself from the fledgling democracy backed by Elam Garrick and the people's rediscovery of their own spiritual past is not without opposition, as the outside efforts to help rebuild its civilization come under attack by those who reject any alien influence. Um, And... Right off the bat here, I just have to say, I really don't think that anybody does better storylines that weave in relevant elements from history, past and present, I think better than Una McCormick. Here, here. Uh, her books are always just a treasure trove of, you know, relevant references to the world around us and history like as a social studies major myself like i i just love you know references to history and uh both you know wartime and peacetime and and all those intervening years that she just manages to to work into her stories in a some in sometimes very subtle ways that just kind of sneak up on you and make you realize oh wow that's what she's talking about it's pretty cool It really does work so well so that she is weaving, I think, a tapestry when she's writing. And so you really can't tell the difference between the story that she's telling and the history she's weaving in. So it's all coming together to where you almost miss it. And then all of a sudden you're like wait, this this kind of reminds me of, and then, you know, you think of whatever historical reference that she's using, and it. I think it just is, it just makes for great Star Trek. You know, it, this is what Star Trek has always done from the very beginning, kind of give us a mirror to look at ourselves, and th- I think that's why we loved The Crimson Shadow so much, both you and I. Not only was it a great Star Trek book, it was a great work of fiction. It was, it was just a fantastic story. And where we are here with Cardassia, I mean, this is a broken world. In fact, we were talking right before the show, and it just reminds me of some sort of Mad Max thing. Like, it's <laughs> Star Trek Beyond the Thunderdome. Because Cardassia seems like the world's worst place to live right here after the occupation and, and what the dominion did to it before it left Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely it's definitely a kind of dystopian wasteland uh facing you know it's kind of i would say existential threat you know it can go one way or another way and depending on the choices it makes if it becomes the old cardassia that it was before well it's doomed like it can't it's untenable it can't continue the way it has been and this novel, this story, really shows the beginning of a movement away from that and to something a little bit more hopeful than the, you know, beyond the th- Thunderdome of Star Trek. <laughs> well, and, and this is where one of the references really came in for me. It reminded me of that post-World War One Germany where the people are very discouraged. They have, they're just being led by fear. Um, the country has honestly been also treated very badly in some ways at that point Germany had. Um, the reparations against them were just horrendous. Mm. And it led to this feeling of intense fear and then that created that kind of intense jingoism, which as we know, Cardassians are already big fans of in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And of course, that comes into play with the true way being able to kind of work behind the scenes and create this this fear mongering of we're losing what it means to be Cardassian. And so what really needs to happen, we need to kick all the aliens out and just be for Cardassia. Um, and I think this is just something that's, you know, it works f- for looking at history, but we can also see this kind of thing today with what's kind of happening with Russia as well mm. as they were a fledgling democracy and who knows what they really are now. Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard to say for sure. I was kind of waiting for some kind of reference to, you know, members of the True Way wearing brown shirts almost because it really <laughs> did feel like, you know, Hitler's brown shirted thugs, you know, kind of putting forward that agenda and and moving that ideology forward on Cardassia. And for a place and a people that have been so intensely beaten and nearly broken as the Cardassians are that that sort of rhetoric is very can be very appealing and can be something that's very easy to latch on to well and you know it was interesting to see you know Miles kind of deal with this and kind of realize you know even maybe the Cardassians didn't deserve what happened to them you know when you when you are seeing just this wasteland and it it almost seemed like um from the major city that garrick was in with um, the castellian that it's been raining there a lot more than normal and that's because of this kind of almost nuclear winter that they're having Mm. where it's causing more cloud cover than normal in cardassia and it just it sounds like a either a hot arid desert or it's turning into a monsoon but this planet is just it's not right Mm. and no wonder people all over Cardassian they don't know where to turn who to turn to um you know they don't know if they can trust this government um they don't know if they can trust the people behind it and they they are looking for some kind of stability especially a people who's being especially a people who's used to being kind of told what to do. Mm. Yeah, no, the, the, the state of the physical state of Cardassia really serves as a, as an effective pathetic fallacy to the mood of the people. And I, I love how uh, McCormick is able to take these kind of literary devices and bring them all together. It really does create an atmosphere um, that feels very, very real. And, so here we get, you know, the Federation kind of coming in and, and helping the Cardassians and, you know, kind of hopefully not in the patriarchal way we sometimes get in the original series, but in a genuine, you know, we want to help out our neighbors and try and guide Cardassians where maybe they want to go, hopefully, which is to a more open and just society, which is kind of what Garrick and the government that he's supporting is moving them towards hopefully <laughs> well and you have the idea of, of the federation and and people like keiko and miles and they're there trying to help be a good role model right. for a different lifestyle of the kind of cardassia that somebody like garrick is trying to bring forth you know the same kind of cardassia damar died for, right exactly um you know and the realization, you know, that Cardassia can't go backwards. It really only can go forwards. If it goes backwards, it's it's going to implode. You know, it, it's going to destroy itself. Mm-hmm. And the scariness in all of this, especially for the Cardassian people, comes that change is scary. And especially the type of change that they are going through. And, and there's a ton of different type of change. And I think... One of the biggest here, and and this was probably one of the most interesting things to see happen, is the Aurelian way coming forth and the idea of faith and belief. And and it was really interesting because, of course, Cardassians are known for being, you know, uber logical and 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 pessimistic, mm-hmm. and kind of against any kind of superstition for the most part, and yet this belief system from their past has come back to help kind of galvanize people and give them purpose and and hope and a mission again in a way that nothing else has and it was nice to be able to, for me to see 
Bejor not be the only place where faith and religious belief are a benefit, mm-hmm. but actually a help. And it was kind of nice and interesting to see that mirroring of, you know, Bajor getting through the occupation with its faith and this faith kind of coming back in Cardassia and helping them kind of get through, you know, their darkest hour. Yeah, I definitely do like the uh, kind of how it's come full circle where, you know, the Cardassians went to Bajor and from the Cardassians perspective, they had a lot to teach Bajor. Bajor to them seemed like this backward world with superstitious beliefs and agrarian people who, you know, weren't, you know, flying to other planets and taking them over like the Cardassians were. So clearly they don't know what's what. Uh, and it's really turned around that Bajor is kind of the model for the new Cardassia now. You know, Cardassians are kind of looking to the example of the Bajorans as to you know, how to live kind of more in harmony with their world and the people around them. And the Aurelian way on its own almost seems to be like the other side of the coin of the faith of the prophets and Bajor. It's really cool to see that kind of symmetry almost between the two. Uh, Cardassia pillaged Bajor and now Bajor is turning around and helping Cardassia understand what was wrong with how it was and how to lead to a brighter future basically well and it's so interesting because you know in so many stories and even in star trek for the most part um outside of deep space nine any kind of religious belief it's not really shown as being helpful um but the way in which this um it's answering those big questions for the cardassian people in a lot of ways for a lot of them of okay, what is our purpose as as Cardassians? Giving them a hope for the future, and uh, you know, some people might call that irrational or logical. And yet, I especially think, especially with the the mirroring of Bajor's you know faith, we can see that religious belief in, and especially somebody like Vedic Yavir. This is these aren't people who are illogical or don't put thought into what they believe. There, there's a lot of thought that goes into it, you know, um, and they believe what they believe, not just because that's how they were raised, but they've studied, they've lived, they've been through horrible things, you know, and, and they have allowed their experience to help shape their faith as well. So it, there's a lot more that goes into this. And I just I love that it is Deep Space Nine that really is, again, kind of at the forefront of this issues because it makes so much sense for Deep Space Nine to be at the forefront because they're the ones who really kind of brought the idea of any kind of religious belief system as being valid in Star Trek and not just something that we kind of like, oh, Klingons and their silly beliefs. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, you really have to deal with it. And I, I think it's nice to see that the Cardassians... Again, just being more fleshed out, more rounded as a civilization. And in the end, I, you know, I think Chris and I have talked about this before on the orb and even here with the Deep Space Nine relaunch, but I, the Cardassians are the most well rounded race in Star oh, Trek. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, just uh, the way that they're dealt with, everything is not uniform. Um, and especially as we work through uh, this uh, relaunch, you really see that here as they begin to branch out and open up with the Cardassian people. And it, it's fascinating. It's utterly fascinating. And I love when Star Trek really does that well of, of stop giving us the, you know, the monolithic races. <laughs> yeah. There's the argumentative you, you race, up, the aggressive race, yeah, the religious yeah, exactly. race, the peaceful race. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They all look like pigs and they all like to argue, you know, but every Tellarite can't be like that, you know? No, and I mean, Star Trek, I mean, I I absolutely agree. Cardassians are kind of very much the most well-rounded race. I mean, when we first learned about the Cardassians, you could say a religious Cardassian, what does that look like? And now we kind of go, oh, okay, so that's what that looks like. Uh, And Star Trek always does best when it breaks out of the mold of um, the monolithic alien race. Even on a limited level, I'm thinking of, uh, for example, the Herogen on Voyager. There's the one episode Mm -hmm. where they had like the 
the kind of small computer nerd IT tech Hirogen guy that was, you know, even through one character that instantly made that race, you know, much more fascinating. And with Cardassians, every time we met a new Cardassian, we kind of got a new facet of these people. And they really felt like, you know, well-rounded, interesting people. And, and not just in the way that, like, for example, the Bajorans kind of seem like humans with bumpy noses. I, I don't want to slight the Bajorans, but they're diverse in the same way that humans are diverse. And they just kind of mirror that. But Cardassians have a diversity all of their own. And every new Cardassian we met brought something new to the table that just really made me reevaluate how I see the Cardassians as a whole. Well, and that was, I think, the strength of something like uh, Star Trek VI with the Klingons mm-hmm. and kind of giving us a different picture. You know, Gorkon and his daughter are a much different type of Klingon that we had seen before. And then, of course, Judgment on Enterprise, where we see the lawyer right. um, there on Kronos. You know, those are the things that really open those races up and start to make you think, okay, what is the rest of this like? And... So, but Cardassians, they did such a good job. And, and I think part of that was through Garrick and mm-hmm. that he was so many different things in so many different ways. You kind of realize just through that one character what the vast population of Cardassians was like, you know, that there were all these different facets to them. They, they weren't a monolith in any way. So, yeah, the, I, I just love, though, that faith and belief here are treated with such respect and that it's something that in this book is a, is a real benefit to the Cardassian people as it has been to the Bajoran people. And I just, I think, and, and not only that, but of course the other ones who are working side by side with Keiko to really help her out as well in this project. Um, and they're also helping bring out that new idea of a new Cardassia where we are more open to accepting people that don't necessarily always think like the majority. Mm. So that's an interesting thing as well. And again, it's nice to see that it's the people of faith that are the ones doing that. Um, And again, just treated with a lot of respect just doesn't happen a lot for for those of us who are in in, especially in science fiction Mm -hmm. um you know so it was really great to see that yeah definitely well speaking of of people of faith uh i kind of had some thoughts about vedic yuvir and i know in kind of the stories leading up to this we see what i kind of call the rehabilitation of his character uh so kind of his driving force in this story has been to, you know, issue the attainder on Kira and strip her of of her rights in the Bajoran faith. And then leading up to this, he, you know, works to return the orbs to Bajor and it kind of rehabilitates his character a bit. In this book, I think it really represents his uh, redemption as a character. Um, I loved how, he was kind of the key to defusing the situation and and really bringing the situation to a close and helping out, you know, people that years ago he would have thought of as his enemy um, as a member of the Bajoran militia when he was on Deep Space Nine. Uh, and I thought, I, I was also thinking about Keiko's reaction to him, thinking like, oh, I, I kind of like this guy, but then feeling guilty about that because of what he did to Kira. And again, it just goes to show how well-rounded these characters are and how many facets they have. They're not just good or evil. They're real people uh, with real motivations and ways in which we can sympathize with them or not. Well, and and I think, yeah, them doing that with this character helps you see that he didn't have malicious intent towards Kira in the first place. It had nothing to do with that. You know, he's he's a person of strong belief himself, and he believed what he was doing was right with Kira. Mm-hmm. Now, I think he, he comes to see that he didn't handle that correctly right. as we move forward through the storyline of the, the relaunch here. But there was never anything... Um, against Kira specifically it was about um the uh, 
the clash of ideology at that point. Mm-hmm. And that's where it stayed for him. It was never something that was personal. And so that's what I like here is that you really are seeing this guy. This is who this guy is. You know, he really does care about people and um, their situation and um, doing all that he can to uh, further the idea of peace and prosperity for everyone, even somebody who used to be his enemy. Which is, you know, in the end, it's a very turn the other cheek kind Mm -hmm. of uh, attitude. And you can see that here. Um, And I like that, like you said, it's not like somebody's all good or all bad or even that he was bad in the first place. He was just on the different side than Kira and that doesn't necessarily make him bad. We automatically see him as kind of quote unquote bad because he's against our main character. (laughs) But they both have good reasons for doing what they did, and it put them on opposite sides. But that doesn't always make one person right and the other person wrong, or one person bad and the other person good. Mm. You know, life is not that simple, and that's one of the hardest lessons to learn in the end of that. Yeah, he was a fantastic character Mm -hmm. in this story, and um, to watch him earn the trust of a character who is trying to destroy what he's trying to do you know all the lies that this little girl has been fed she's been strapped with a bomb she thinks she's doing the right thing because this is the only thing for Cardassia is to drive all these aliens away and yet at the end he's the one that she trusts the most right it just shows you the heart of this character yeah it was a it was an excellent move on the part of the story to kind of do the Cardassian Bajoran relationship in microcosm through these two characters, you know, really bringing these two far apart worlds together in a very, very um, personal and intimate way kind of thing, uh, showing that, you know, this one Cardassian can move from so extreme a position to where she's trusting the only Bajoran in the room kind of thing was, was really, really interesting and really showing the path that Cardassia has taken over the last few years. And it was, it was really nice uh, kind of symmetry there. Well, and I think it goes to show what a person with true love, grace and mercy and forgiveness, and they come to another in a situation like this, how far those things go. Mm. And that they destroy hate. You know, when, when when somebody comes at you with nothing but love and mercy and grace, um, it just has a way of dismantling hate. And what I loved is seeing that play out, like you said, in such a micro level here, which is what I think somebody like uh, Keiko and her project, um, Miles being here... Um, you know, you think of Miles having to let go of the preconceived notions about Cardassians that he has had. Obviously, there are Cardassians like Masset and um, Garrick who have earned his trust. Even when he said, even when Garrick's not creeping me out. Um, <laughs> well, that was and, well put. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Garrick can be creepy. That there's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Miles thinking that he's <laughs> totally right. And yet at the same time, um, you know, he's been able to put that aside, have people win his trust and to be here, like, you know, the blurb said he would never have imagined building a life here with what he's been through mm. with the Cardassians. And yet he's able to put that aside and they are living this life of kind of open forgiveness to the Cardassians. I mean, they just put them through a war and killed billions mm. And yet we're here to help. And that those are the, I think, the fundamental principles of, you know, the Federation of kind of embracing that idea of we are not here to hold a grudge. We are here to offer the grace you don't deserve. And that's a really spiritual idea as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it, it's very much, you know, for the wide-eyed idealist, uh, view of the Federation, it really fits in with what they claim to stand for most of the time, which is that, you know, we're stronger together than apart. 
former enemies can become friends. So let's all join hands and sing Kumbaya in the Federation. I mean, that's that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is really true. And, you know, speaking of uh, the O'Briens, it was interesting. You kind of put it here. Keiko kind of stepping out of Miles' shadow and, and really the story being about her and uh, giving her some character growth. In fact, even telling the backstory of why she decided to become a botanist in the first place was really, really nice because a lot of times the writing with Keiko on the show, she's not well served. Mm. Unfortunately, I think they they create a character that's sometimes a little too naggy. Yeah. And, and, and it's not well-rounded. It's because that's the only time we see her. Right. And so I'm, I'm not putting that you know, on, on, on the actress or anything like that. It's just, I don't think she was as well-written and as well-rounded as she could have been. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was always a bit of a shame because I, I felt like I really always wanted to learn more about her and her motivations and that sort of thing. So, you know, we never see her outside of just being Miles' wife and, uh, the kind of attendant, problems that we see in their marriage occasionally and that sort of thing and like you said it's you know those are the only times we get to see her unfortunately but uh, one thing I've really noticed is uh, Una McCormick is really really great at serving uh, her female characters and she really brings that to bear with Keiko's character in this story I really felt like you know sometimes in deep space nine they tried to give her her own story where you know she led expeditions to bejor and that kind of thing but it always just kind of fell back to what does that mean for miles back on the station how is he coping with that and that sort of thing so for this story this really felt like the first time that keiko had her own story to tell and that she was driving the action and her motivations and her thoughts and how she dealt with the issues really came to the forefront and I really appreciated that because uh, I feel like you know her character could have been really great on the show and we never got to see that what is so great about the way that Una McCormick writes I think this story too is that you know she never writes the female characters as a detriment to the male characters like you never you never get that dichotomy feeling like the, the this unevenness it just feels so natural and so real and so good as uh, you know she did that with the missing right yeah and you know the fact that it was just it it was about the story is about you know um pulaski and it's it's about roe and it, it's about crusher it though that's who the story is about and it just felt so real and so great to have it be like that. And and like you said here, she's able to 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 make this story. There's never a time in my mind I'm thinking, well, where's I need more miles, mm. you know? Because she's crafting a great story, and that's all I care about. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that it's serving a character like Keiko who who just didn't get as much play in the show as she should have and when she did it was just a little stereotypical and and, and so it, that was my frustration and I'm glad she's not doing that here and especially there the conversation between her and Miles at the end about whether they should move <laughs> it felt so real to the characters and yet just so real in general it was fantastic mm -hmm. I mean uh, them talking about you know should they move you know should they be where they are uh, are they in too much danger with their family i mean just she nails it i mean just completely nails absolutely. it. absolutely um i was also thinking and, and how great it is that she totally turns the dynamic on its head and I, I kind of didn't think of this till later, but it's it's really Keiko that's in this horribly dangerous situation. And Miles is sitting, quote unquote, at home watching and hoping she comes home safe, which is just such a nice flip on the usual dynamic between the two of them that it was it was kind of just a neat way to do that. Well, and on the other side, too, getting to see and what she does with Miles is really interesting and putting him in that uncomfortable position of, of kind of 
the political realm mm-hmm. and how you know unpolitical he is trying to kind of learn that system and you know that's going to be something i think will be interesting as we continue on in the deep space nine relaunch and as uh, david r george the third brings those back you know um and those characters and where they'll hopefully go in the future you know rounding off miles to make him even more versatile as a character i mean the guy's already the jack of all <laughs> trades um and to kind of add more things that he can be better at i don't think he's ever going to be the best you know diplomat or politician obviously <laughs> but uh, you get here that he's kind of starting to he's going to start slowly having to learn the game a little bit if he's going to continue to live here in Cardassia mm-hmm. um, and be in the position that he's in so I think that's a they've set up great storylines for both him and Keiko that I can't wait to see you know play out more in, in future stories so that's really what you want a book to do yeah for sure they the book just generally uses all of the characters very very well and even though it is Keiko's story and and what she's going through you know the fact that Miles is learning and growing through this as well and you know kind of bringing it back to his opinions about Cardassians and you know that sort of thing it it really serves his character as well for sure one of the things that was interesting to me in the book was this whole idea of, of Keiko kind of lamenting about the politics involved in science and having just talked about Jurassic Park on um, a couple weeks ago on the 602 Club and the idea of how science works with trying to you know, make the money to, to do the science and where scientists have to go to get the money to do things um, – that in the end, you know, science really is never pure. We're never just doing pure science mm. because as any human being, we're approaching it with some preconceived notions, whether that's about, you know, what we believe uh, in, in the political realm, our, our just personal beliefs, our religious beliefs, whether we have any religious beliefs or no religious beliefs at all, that's still kind of a religious belief. It's all drives that science. If I believe there's a God and I'm doing science, then that might have an impact. If I believe there's no God, that's going to have an impact. You know, all of these things drive science. And so I thought it was interesting that she says that because Star Trek, I think, sometimes has a bad habit of talking about science as if it can't be influenced by the outside. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not can't be, but it shouldn't be. Is kind of seems to be Star Trek's take sometimes. Exactly. But as if that's ever going to be possible, Mm -hmm. because even if it's not driven by some political ramification, it's still driven by the person who's doing it and they have beliefs about all sorts of Mm -hmm. things. And so those will affect how that that scientific research is done, what they think about the scientific research. So there's never anything I think that anyone could say, oh, well, we've got pure science, Mm -hmm. you know, because – we're all being influenced by something and we all influence what we do. And so it's just good to remember where our influences are and just be upfront about them, mm. you know, instead of, you know, like playing this game as if it, and it's not bad. It just, we're human beings. Mm. And so we all have thoughts and beliefs about something. And yeah. um, I, I don't know. What did you think about that? Well, I, th- I personally think, you know, the idea of pure science and that sort of thing is, a really good, you know, goal to strive for, um, you know, always kind of working towards it. But like any ultimate goal, it's not going to be one that's ever reachable. Uh, and like a lot of other things in life, if you ever say that you have reached that, well, you're deluding yourself because that's not the case. But like, you know, having a goal or having having an idealistic idea in mind, you know, isn't necessarily a bad thing. But again, like you said, it's never going to be completely free of that sort of thing, but it, it would be nice. (laughs) Yeah. And it would be different if, if we weren't involved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's kind of it, isn't (laughs) it? Humans just kind of mess everything up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but I mean, if you think about it too, though, just say in Star Trek, Vulcans doing science, Mm -hmm. Vulcans have a set of 
presuppositions and beliefs about things. Like take Vulcans in the 22nd century. Mm. The Vulcan science directed is said that time travel is impossible. Well, that was until to Paul time traveled. Mm. You know, um, the Vulcan science directed didn't also think that people should be melders until they were proven wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, it's those preconceived notions that we all have, those beliefs about the universe, uh, whatever they may be, if they're run by anyone or if we don't believe they're run by anyone, all of that has an effect on on how we do oh, science. Definitely, and so yeah. no matter what the being is, we're going to have some sort of bias we bring to our science. And, it, and therefore, it, it won't ever just be... There's there's no pure science. Mm. It's it's all human science. Yep, definitely. You know? And and that's just yeah. So Even the motivations that for that starting cool. research into something, for example. Right now, I can understand Keiko's lament about politics driving science. Um, you know, uh, it would be great if we lived in a world where political realities didn't drive certain parts of science. Mm. You know, I, I especially here in the states right now, the the lament for me is. That um, you know NASA is not getting the funds anymore because apparently we just kind of don't um, we don't see that as being useful. We see it as like a waste of money or something. Yeah. Um, so things like that. That's where politics. Yeah. yeah, you can lament politics definitely being false. And I and I really saw that uh, that argument. And, and I really kind of uh, empathized with Keiko in that argument. And I was specifically actually thinking of NASA uh, at the time. And I have a I have a feeling that Una McCormick might have been as well with just some of the ways she said some of the things here. And I, I think of like people don't want or governments don't want to fund things that don't have real tangible outcomes that are immediately usable. Um and in that way, NASA kind of falls to the wayside because people think, well, you know, going up into space and sending people to Mars, how does that create a product that we can market right now? How does that solve an ill in society that we're trying to solve right now? It, You know, it doesn't. But so much of the science that comes out of NASA and out of these projects has all of these tangential benefits that nobody had any idea about them, you know, the like Velcro, Velcro exa- exactly. Uh, the microwave oven, plastics, like all of these things kind of came out of, no no one set out to create these things, but it was an accidental discovery while pursuing something else. And I just, it, I, I get a little bit worked up about the, about the, you know, tangible benefit argument because it just, it doesn't work for me (laughs) because so many of these things are unintended outcomes and, you know, we wouldn't have the microprocessor if somebody hadn't stumbled upon it while trying to figure out something else, you know, it's just, ah, it bugs me. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. I mean, the wonderful amounts of felicity that happened in technological discovery because of, of something like NASA is astounding. And I'm completely with you. In fact, I think I've talked about it on a few different shows recently just because of the subject matter. So um, I I am fully in that camp as well. I, I think it's important for us to not just focus on the ground, mm-hmm. you know, um, to be focusing up yeah. um, and, uh, and, and towards the future, not just the here and now, because that's not all there is. Yeah. Reaching so, for the stars yeah. to use the cliche. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, um, I think I probably know what the answer to this is going to be, but kind of rating this book, we're only doing the first half. We're going to do the second half very, very soon, uh, the Andor um, book that's a companion to this. So the Cardassia book alone by Una McCormick here, The Lotus Flower, what would you rate this, Dan? Well, I, I first of all, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious from uh, how I've been speaking about the story that, that I really enjoyed this book, uh, much as I have, you know, all of Una McCormick's works that I've read. And for me, Deep Space Nine is all about the characters. And this story is just so much character driven. Uh, and, and in some ways from characters that I wouldn't expect to be driving the story, such as Vedic Yavir and especially Keiko. So, Oh, and the other thing that really factors into this is I had read the Deep Space Nine relaunch novels ages ago and then rereading them for, you know, this period 
doing these podcasts and reviews of these stories, I discovered that I had somehow missed this one. And it just was so exciting to be able to read new Deep Space Nine set at this point that that just put it over the top for me. So for this one, I'm going to have to give it, I'd say, five out of five lush regrown Cardassian forests. Man, um, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, I, I didn't miss this one back of the day, but I also didn't remember just how good this book was. And so I am with you. This is five out of five Yavir interventions. <laughs> um, it is it is hands down a fan stinkantastic Star Trek book, and um, I'm oh, I I don't relish the fact of if Heather Jarman can can uphold this level <laughs> with the Andor book. I I really hope that she can. So I'll be very interested to jump into that one next, but. Um, this Cardassian book, and as Una knows, Cardassian like no other, it does not disappoint. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Una McCormick is already great, but Una McCormick writing Cardassians, ah, oh, it doesn't get better. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Well, Matthew, I, I got to say, you know, talking about an Una McCormick novel, uh, talking about her take on Cardassians uh, and all that sort of stuff, a really character driven story. I had a blast today. This is some of my favorite topics to talk about uh, with regards to Star Trek novels. Well, I just love, you know, this this is basically a novella length book. You know, it's about 130 pages. We had so much to talk about. And, you know, there's still gems packed in there so i hope everybody will go check this out it, it man i we could gush all night <laughs> but uh it is this has been fun talking about the lotus flower today but it's not the only thing that we have been talking about here on track fm the past week so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network previously on trek.fm standard orbit so I just stopped, watched it, and just cried like a child, and then did it again and kind of brought up like what I was thinking while I was tweeting it. But that first time through, uh, it was such an, an emotional impact. I, I was wrecked. Earl Grey. You know, what the dressing up and what the, the clubs and the meetings, and the podcast, you know, all really comes down to is just finding and talking and being around other people who enjoy something that you really enjoy. The Orb. This year, opening for five-year mission is Del Rock. Del Rock. Del Rock. They'll rock your world. Bajoran style. <laughs> rock your world. Bajoran <laughs> style. I hope everybody's got their earring on tonight. <laughs> the Ready Room. I do like that he just drops out of the sky naked. That is the perfect way to introduce Q. And then I love, just before we cut to the credits, they get this great shot of him looking up at Picard, and he's like, hey, what up? You know, <laughs> right. A little flirty. I love it. <laughs> to the journey! My question is, what would Janeway have in place of banana pancakes? Because that's Bolana's thing. Would Janeway's be coffee ice cream? I was just about to say coffee ice cream. <laughs> my, my lips... My lips were forming the syllables to say coffee ice cream. <laughs> Warp 5. I was struck by watching Broken Bow, the fact that it was front and center in the very first episode. Because I remember going back, I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. And I remember revisiting it now in full um, when I first watched Enterprise in my f comprehensive rewatch. And I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. I know that both of us will come out of it okay, but <laughs> since Matthew is not used to sparring with either of us, I'm afraid that he's going to be a bloody mess lying on the floor of the 602 Club. The 602 Club. And this whole time, it's really... I feel like it's these people, they're playing God with fossilized mosquitoes as if, you know, they have the right to do this, like they have the knowledge to do this, um, you know, that they can control a, a, 
any kind of species that they have absolutely no knowledge of. Literary treks. Yeah, this happened to her at 22 when she was on Ryan's Hope, and it was at its peak. It was a very popular soap opera at the time. And truth be told, I've not seen tons of Ryan's Hope. Soap operas just aren't my thing. But there were some very... There, it had a big following, and it was not your yeah, typical did. run-of-the-mill soap opera either. I mean, Claire Levine, the writer of the show, was doing some very different things. Axonar, the official podcast. There is more to life than just get up, go to work, come home, watch TV, go to bed, repeat until dead. There's more to life than that. And I I believe that uh, that's the essential magic of Star Trek is that it says it it appeals to that, that urge to get up off the couch, walk out the front door and go see what's out there. And introducing the newest addition to the network, Women at Warp. Iman is fabulous, and I quite like Martia. Yeah, me too. She's a fun character. Yep. Also, you think Kirk would be happier about kissing himself. <laughs> right? It was his lifelong ambition. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I f- more feel like it's his lifelong ambition to kiss Spock, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows. Find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond Uh, we are wherever you get your podcasts and so um, if if you're an apple user you know you can do a few different things to help us out Um, hitting that subscribe button helps other people be able to find us and so if you have a passion for star trek books and just want to be able to share that with others hitting that subscribe button helps us to be more visible in the podcast realm there if you'd like to help us out as well in another way on itunes you can give us star ratings or reviews those do the same thing help us be more visible and of course just share the love for more people getting to listen to literary treks and and find fabulous books like this if you are not an apple user you are covered as well you can find the shows on stitcher TuneIn, spreaker soundcloud windows phone you can stream and download the mp3 file from the website and grab the rss link as well another important thing for us is that we are a listener supported network and without your support we can't help make We can't help keep all of these shows coming to you each week. It is an expensive process. We have so many shows on the network these days. We're trying to bring you the best content possible, and it costs money to host those and keep those running. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm. You can find the goals that we have that we're trying to reach. We've got some different milestone contribution levels, and they come with some great perks. If you'd love to have some early access to content, well, my associate producers, they get early access to content. So they get to listen to the show before anybody else. We've got producer credit, seats on the content development team, and so much more. Thank you so much for your support. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you'd like to contact us, we'd love to hear about your favorite Star Trek books. We'd love to hear about what you're thinking about the books that we've been reading. Just go to trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail. Look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, the Babel Conference. We love talking about the books and comics we read here and so much more on the Babel Conference. Just search the Babel Conference in Facebook. Or you can click discussion at trek.fm on the menu bar. And then we have our Goodreads group. We have bookshelves there. You can check out what we're going to be reading next. We've got the coming up soon, what we're reading currently, all of those things. We've got great discussions happening there as well about the books. You can check that out. Just go to the main show page there. We've got that listed in all these contact areas. You can find us on Goodreads like to thank our associate producers, Will Wynn. He's a great associate producer here on Literary Treks. You can find him at Will underscore Wynn. And, of course, he's on the Babel Conference. He's the associate producer of The Orb and Earl Grey and Trek Femmes Contact Manager. If you have any ideas for future shows, just send him an email or tweet. His email is will.win at trek.fm. And thank you, Ken Tripp, for your support of the network. I appreciate you so much being an associate producer here on literary treks now dan when you're not shuffling through the streets in the rain in cardassia where can we find you <laughs> well matthew uh you can find me on 
my website, www.treklet.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekletreviews. And I'm on Twitter at uh, trekletreviews and my personal Twitter feed at kertrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And of course, I'm hanging around the Babel Conference or uh, the Trek BBS talking about Star Trek novels because, you know, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Matthew, when you're not whispering in the ear of the Cardassian leader trying to guide them to a more free and open society, where can we find you? Man, that it does take a lot of time. So guys, forgive me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm also doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we're talking about Deep Space Nine exclusively. I do The 602 Club. We talk about all sorts of great geeky things, movies, TV shows. We had an amazing interview with the editor from The Clone Wars recently. Check that out. And then, of course, I have my own personal blog. I book reviews, uh, movie reviews, things like that at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.